Okay. Here's a blessedly short book. There's something to be said for that. Um, what do you think of structuralism? Yeah. Confusing. Um, he references a lot of, of, of things that I'm not familiar with, and a lot of authors I haven't read. Um, so sure, I think it's how it's pronounced. So sir. So sir. Yeah, he's the founder of structuralist linguistics. About a hundred years ago, a little more than and it becomes a kind of method, not restricted to linguistics, but they're attempting to apply it to different disciplines. So it's a new attempt to unify knowledge. And it's anti-historical, so it's anti-Hegelian. <clears throat> it's these pure conceptual structures sitting out there outside of space and time. And we're going to try and figure out the conceptual structures, these new things to think about, that connect say, linguistics and anthropology and crystallography and math. Okay, does it surprise you that this begins with French culture? Since this is more Descartes. Uh, they're going to put up their feet throw some logs on the fire <laughs> and discern the structures which connect all yeah. of reality. We've done this before. All right. This could not have happened in England or America. I mean, it did later on, but that's because they were kind of latecomers who were just looking to cash in and get tenure. <laughs> no, they were, uh, you know, this is, this is history, but it's important history, intellectual history. All right, what else do you think about it? I mean, you found it confusing, Paul. That's a good start. What else? Okay, well, I baffle you with this then. Remember that description I gave you about how political party systems were? It was structuralist. Yeah. What I did was show you the underlying structures that connect all those things. Yeah, so I was, I felt sympathetic to a lot of, to some of their ideas, mm -hmm. but the, it was, it got to the point where they were imposing structures where they weren't. Uh, that's the difficulty, of course. And how do you know where structures are, since they may be lurking anywhere? <laughs> All right. All right. Um, it's a little bit like what we saw 25 centuries ago with Pythagoras' attempt to mathematize the world. He said, look, I know you've been looking at objects that have color and form and stuff, but that's not what runs the universe. What runs the universe is this new stuff, math. And it's secretly hidden inside everything. Now, you may not believe that, but that's because you haven't joined my religion. Yeah. I feel like there's some truth to that in some sense, like when you look at a flower, you see like the different patterns and stuff, or yeah, like the Fibonacci sequence and different things, and I feel like there's some truth to that, which could obviously lead someone to believe that it's yeah. pretty feasible. Okay, but I mean, uh, the uh, since it's not so far-fetched to think that there are patterns hidden in objects, which are objects of pure cognition, um, well, suppose these things didn't necessarily deal with quantity, but were rather relational, or rather about binary relations between things and their opposites. You might be able to c construct some set of things that you can think about like that. 
two questions there. One is that it seems like you can't you can't extract quantity from anything where you have quantity necessarily to relationships, right? Um, and the other is there what what constitutes an object of pure cognition? An object of pure cognition is one that has no um, direct uh, sensory correlative. For example, um, square root of negative one. Okay, that's something you can think about, but you can't see it. Okay, well, it may be that these structures, I mean, it's not clear whether they're going to be directly observable or whether there's something we extrapolate. I think it's something we extrapolate. All right, but if you can see the force of Pythagoras's much earlier idea that there's a secret conceptual pattern called math hidden inside all of sound, or what the structuralists are saying is that hidden inside everything are these conceptual structures, right? And they don't inform you necessarily about the quantity of a thing, but rather the, of the of the contrast it has with other things. It's about binary oppositions. For example, when uh, structuralism was applied to anthropology by a very eminent structure, structuralist and anthropologist named Levi Strauss. Okay, he wrote a number of famous books. Uh, one of them was called The Raw and the Cooked. Uh, it's about, about the binary opposition that you see in every society between stuff that's cooked and stuff that's raw. All right? And what he says is that this is, his anthropology is like linguistics. Here's why. He said, look, social practices like cooking all right, are in fact languages. They're ways of communicating. I know it sounds strange. Hear me out. They are bound up by certain ill by certain rules that everyone in the culture knows, but are not often articulated clearly. Right? So there are certain things that you eat and certain things that you don't eat. Right? Like Hindus won't touch beef and Jews won't touch pork. Right? So that's part of it. He says it doesn't matter what you're making taboo. The idea, though, is that you're supposed to separate the stuff you can eat from the stuff you can't. Think about meatless Fridays during Lent. What we're doing is separating out the stuff you're allowed to eat from the stuff you're not allowed to eat. It's all really, all cultures do that. Yeah. Um, but aren't those more, they're, they're not just something that everyone knows, like those are written down in like the, the Old Testament, you have the In some cases, but um, hunter-gatherer bands would say, look, we don't eat that because we are the, the porcupine people and we don't eat the porcupine. And they're not always written down. All right? So there are plenty of cultures, pre-linguistic or pre-literate, that have these taboos. All right? So, uh, for example, you would say every culture distinguishes between kin and it has an idea of kinship, who you're related to, and who you're not related to. But there's no culture that doesn't have that idea. So, okay, so they're all distinguishing between my relations and people who are not my relations. Uh, taboos. We have seen, essentially, in every society, known society, there's a taboo against incest. What that means is you're separating out those from whom you can have sex and those with whom you can't. Every society turns out to do that. And Levi Strauss says, look, there's got to be some underlying structure that's causing the same kind of distinctions to get made. All right? In any, in any culture, there's some stuff people won't eat. I mean, think of our taboo against cannibalism. It's not because it's actually probably, it's any less nutritious than beef. It's just 
Who would eat human flesh? Well, actually, a fair number of our ancestors did. Why? We've made human flesh is taboo for us. I'm glad that it is. But if you see what I'm saying, it's found everywhere. He says, so think about what, what structuralism would have been like when they had, in the case of linguistics, where it starts. A language is made up of signs, and which, which are the relationship between a thing signified and the signifier. There's this, and there's the word cup. There's this, and there's the word marker. This is the signified, this is the signifier, signifier, all right? Okay, in addition to that, every language has to have a grammar, all right? And the grammar is the rules for the sequence of these symbols. Not every sequence makes sense. Consider, for example, the English sentence, the cat is on the mat. Now consider another English sentence. The mat is on the cat. What flipping the subject and predicate amount around does is tell you that they have different spatial relations. Okay? So that's what the grammar does. It tells you about the relationship between the subject and predicate here. Now let me try another sentence very much like that. Cat the mat on. All right, now the reason why that doesn't make any sense is because it violates the grammatical rules of English. It does not follow the rules for creating sequences between these signs. You wouldn't have that problem in Latin, though. You mess with the order. Fair enough. You can still get away with it then. I think that's one of the reasons why Latin emerged as a, a less uh, popular language. <laughs> because of such ambiguities. But bracket that for now. The point is something like this. Every language has, sign, has a relationship between sign and signifier. That's our binary. And then it has rules for the sequence of these things, which tell you how the, how the symbols relate to one another. Not every set of symbols means something because it doesn't follow the rules, which tell you how the things relate. But there are rules which every English speaker knows for how to make a sentence like, the cat is on the mat. Okay. So we need the sign-signifier relationship, and we need the grammatical-ungrammatical distinction. Okay. These two binary distinctions are what language revolves around. Now, Levi-Strauss is going to pick this up and say, you know what? In a book like The Raw and the Cooked, which is actually kind of a fun, interesting book, it's weird, but it's a fun book. He says, look, every society makes a distinction between the raw and the cooked, between the edible and the inedible, <coughs> right? Um, which is particularly a handy thing if you're hunter-gatherers because you'll get food poisoning if you're not careful <coughs> what it is that you scavenge up. Okay, so we got a distinction between the edible and the inedible, the raw and the cooked. What he says is, is that this is a kind of language with, with which people in a culture communicate. All right. Suppose I were to invite you to a fancy dinner and said we're going to eat Eskimo style. So I didn't tell you what that was in particular. And then I were to slop onto the table a big chunk of whale blubber. Say, knock yourselves out. I give you all a knife. You can all hack away at that whale blubber. 
Now you would think that very peculiar. Say, what, what kind of a dinner party is this? And I would say, it's a dinner party um, using grammatical rules from a different language from the one in which you ordinarily speak. Because the rules for preparing food are like the rules for constructing sentences. Let me give you an example. That's one I've, I know of. Um, kids speak differently from adults. You've noticed that? Okay. When I was four years old, my uncle came to visit, and it was solid. I liked my uncle because he gave me one of those big Hershey bars. It looked bigger <laughs> when not really little, but I mean, it looked, looked massive, right? It was one of those big things. Like, that's that's what it looked like. All right. So I get up the next morning, and everybody else is asleep because I am thinking about that Hershey bar. I go down and make myself some breakfast. Okay. I make toast. I put jelly on it. I put the Hershey bar in between oh, because I'm four. <laughs> and this strikes me as an unbelievable creation. <laughs> Look at what I have done. I have invented the chocolate sandwich. <laughs> it has jelly Okay, but now stop and think about this for a second. Why it's funny. What that is, is gastronomic baby talk. <laughs> I mean that quite seriously. In the same way that a child speaks differently from an adult. Now, I'm a grown man now, and I have sufficient disposable income that if I wanted to go buy a giant chocolate bar and jelly and some bread and make a giant chocolate sandwich, I could. But the problem is that I don't speak like a four year old anymore or think like a four year old anymore, and I don't violate the rules of adult gastronomy in my culture anymore in the way that a child might. You see the point? There are rules for what you can eat and what you can't eat. Try telling your parents when you're four that you'd like a chocolate sandwich for breakfast. You're not getting it. Yeah. And do you, do you, you don't do it just because it violates the um, the, the cultural guidelines? No, I do because I want a chocolate sandwich. I no, don't no, care no, about the uh, cultural No, 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 like when, when you're older, mm -hmm. you, see, you don't do it because... I don't do it because I don't want it. Because you don't want it, right? right. Not because... Well, because I don't want... Hold it. I also don't feel an inclination to go goo-goo-gaga and talk like I'm two or four. Daddy, what's that? I already know. I'm a daddy already. Right? <laughs> so I, I don't need to have the... to ask the questions or to talk the way a four-year-old talks. Is that because you don't want to or is that because you're following some the cultural both I mean the, they converge structure. the reason why we get the structure is because people don't want to for the most part the reason why people don't want to for the most part is generally speaking people grow up beyond the age of four they stop talking like they were four and they stop eating like they were four right. do any of you find lollipops as attractive as three year olds do I mean there was a time when you'd kill for them <laughs> Not now. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Now you see how, it, how we can move then, strangely enough, from something like linguistics to something like anthropology. Uh, yeah. Couldn't you say that it was merely cultural? Though? Yeah, it is merely cultural. But the like... question is, what is it that we have that we're thinking about? We're thinking about culture. Um, now what he's saying is that there are underlying structures to all of culture. Yeah, it is merely cultural, and I'm able to describe this in this new ideal way, roughly like mathematizing your knowledge of the physical world. Mm -hmm. There are these structures operative in the human mind, which separate up, which set up binary oppositions between the taboo and the not taboo, the kin and the not kin, between the edible and the inedible, 
Yeah. So when Descartes talks about how he traveled around the world and saw different cultures and different customs and mm. saw that a lot of the things that he thought were true were really just cultural, so was he really just discovering the structures then? He was of, discovering that the underlying structures of his own culture because you need the contrast, that binary contrast with somebody else's. That's exactly right. Mm. All right. So it works for linguistics and it works for anthropology. But, strangely enough, it works for math. There's a group of mathematicians calling themselves structuralist mathematicians who are looking for the underlying mathematical structures in certain kinds of mathematical problems. And they found them and were able to define them in the precise way that mathematics does define things. They were called the Bourbaki group. They, they signed their papers, Nicholas Bourbaki, but there is a, it's kind of a pseudonym, it's no such person. It's, it's actually the pseudonym taken by about a dozen guys eminent, mostly Russian mathematicians. So the Bourbaki were pursuing structuralist math, mm -hmm. and indeed they found it. This gives you a hint as to the Cartesian and Platonic uh, genealogy of this. Does it surprise you this has happened in France and not in Scotland? Absolutely, given what you know about their intellectual traditions. This could only have happened on the continent. All right. Oh no. The structuralists are building a giant system. It's going to pull. To, it's going to be the super discipline that pulls together knowledge as disparate as anthropology, linguistics, mathematics, and crystallography. You <laughs> saw so the beginning there. The crystal. Well, that shape could also describe structures of kinship, and also grammatical rules, and also mathematical transformations. This reminded me a bit of the Onion's book we read for macro history, like looking for these structures in art. Yeah, that's a different set of problems because he's being much more empirical. This is intended to be exclusively non-empirical. Right? We're looking for things hidden to the naked eye, the underlying connections that aren't immediately obvious. I mean, who would have thought that cookery was a kind of language. Well, it sort of is. It can or it can be seen that way. Yeah. So if you want to get to the point where they say that everything that exists is structured? Well, there we go. Well, no, not everything, but we're close. Yeah. What's the difference then between a language and a structure? Okay. Languages are different from structures because they're the languages are the set of grammars and vocabularies with which we communicate. That's, that's what natural language would be. Structure are ideal things that inhere in language and its rules, but they also inhere in things like uh, father-son relationships, or in mathematical relationships, or in relationships between different kinds of crystal structure. In other words, there's some it's like a mathematical object. It's an object of pure cognition. It connects all those things that you wouldn't think connected. You're looking at this in the more or less puzzled way that think about what a savage would think in the year 3000 if you told him that there was some underlying connection between a brace of pheasants and a pair of twins. You would have gone. But those are people that look alike and those are birds. <laughs> Yeah, but no, listen, there's an underlying connection between the two twins and the two birds. The fact that there's two of them? 
Well, yeah, okay, now, but no, now you see, what I want to come back with is say, well, you know what connects this set of, say, linguistic problems and problems in anthropology and crystallography? <laughs> There's an underlying structure that you're not seeing. But we're not supposed to see it because that would be empirical. Exactly, you're thinking, but you're not thinking about it. Once you are taught how to think about this, you see structures everywhere. Then the problem that you're going to have is that this is going to turn into theology. It's going to sound really medieval because you're going to start thinking about, as Althusser, the Marxist structuralist, does, about the structure of structures. <laughs> because, of course, all the structures form a structure. <laughs> You could A L T H U S S E R. He strangled his wife and ended up in prison. He was at the Sorbonne before he did. But, you know, well, he probably strangled her structurally. <laughs> but the idea is here what the French are looking for is a new Platonic Cartesian idealism. This is going to do what Descartes wanted to do back with the discourse of method. This is going to be the underlying reality which will connect all possible knowledge. Or not all possible knowledge. See, it's only knowledge about whole things. Because structures have specific properties. Not everything is a structure. For example, a heap of sand is not a structure. That's just an aggregate. That's just a bunch of sand. The parts of it do not have structural relations. All right? On the other hand, a human body is a structure. It's one whole thing. Right? That's first and foremost. It undergoes transformations, and it's self-regulating. So it transforms itself according to certain patterns or rules. You start out as a baby. There's no one who goes the other way. It starts out as an adult and turns into an infant. And as you move from infant to adult, you're going to undergo certain predictable patterns. You will grow in certain ways. You will hit puberty. You will eventually reproduce, become adults. But the point is, human life is a series of transformations. But these are transformations that are not random or arbitrary. They happen according to certain rules. These rules are self-regulating. Notice that when people reproduce, they always produce babies, or human babies, rather than, say, elk, right? That's a predictable pattern of transformation, all right? So bodies transform politically. But as I showed you, uh, how legislatures and the way they're structured, they also transform according to certain rules and structures. And the structures work the same way in every case. This is when I was deep into structuralism at the time I was thinking about this. But it turns out, I think, to be the right answer. Right? It reveals something about very different political regimes. Yeah. So when you did that analysis, it was a deliberately structuralist oh, analysis? Oh, yes. Yeah. That's but I mean, I couldn't explain that to you because you didn't know what structuralism was. So I could just tell you, look, this is about political party systems, which it is. Okay? But what I found, I think, is the underlying structure. It shows you how to that you know, one set of structures with you and a camera, a different set of structures with my camera, and once you add in the temporal uh, dimension to allow them to transform, they all transform according to the same pattern. In the same way that acorns turn into oaks and not into baby carriages. Yeah. So is the idea of structuralism that the, the stru all structures are connected to one giant structure? That's inevitably where it goes. 
Okay. The problem is what they're doing is reinventing theology now. <laughs> now we have the structure of structures. But as Althusser said, um, what this is is organization without an organizer. Yeah. It seems like Spinoza's type of <laughs> base. Like, yeah. Do you see why I'm teaching all this? <laughs> you can say stuff like that, and I know exactly what you're talking about, and you're exactly the same. Is it So wouldn't that just be the basis for like pantheism? Not pan- or, well, or pantheism or, or atheism. Right. You know, um, Althusser is clearly an atheist. He says that the structure of structures is illegible. You can't figure out what it says. The first thing I ever published was a criticism of Marxism, but in part structuralist Marxism, which I really love. Um, but uh, this is, I mean, when you read Althusser, when you read structuralist Marxism, it's a little bit like reading Aquinas, except that it's like the ruins of a cathedral. I mean, just God's not around anymore. But it's the same kind of structure. Right? So the structure of structure is illegible. That's what he says. That's what Althusser says. How does this figure in with uh, analysis, which I guess is, you know, under that thinking, we're breaking things up into their substructures and their substructures according to what each thing does? Oh, I mean, Aristotelian analysis? Um, What this does is going to continue that tradition of analysis, but it's going to be focused not on objects. You know, Aristotle was, what does the liver do? What does the heart do? This is going to be uh, focused on purely conceptual objects, like mathematical objects. To me, it seems like Newtonian Platonism. That's sort of what it's like. Yeah, it's not far fetched. That's not far fetched. In other words, look, you're you're at the point now where you can begin to appreciate how deeply indebted we are to the intellectual traditions which founded our culture. All right, it makes a big difference whether you're an Anglophone or a Francophone. What you study and what you inherit are very different. Also very different habits of mind. I mean, we put together, I mean, Anglophones put together economics, which is what, Adam Smith, which is why uh, neoliberal economics is taken so much more seriously among Anglophones than it does in Europe. Well, they didn't invent it, and it's foreign to their tradition. All right? So now you're at the point where you can start looking back at these 20th century books and say, oh, this is one of these, or this is a new outgrowth of this. Wait until you see when we do language, truth, and logic. I mean, it's Hume's fork all over again, all right, without the sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How would this work in psychology? How did he tie this into psychology? Okay, yeah. I was confused on that. Oh, yeah. Piaget is a very famous developmental psychologist, and he says... Human beings experience the world through psychological structures. And these structures go through a predictable process of development. So he does actually empirical tests in which he does things like show a lollipop to a child and then cover it over. And if you do that early enough in the infant's life, the infant doesn't react. Why? Because the infant doesn't have the idea of object permanence. That's something that actually comes on online in the process of infant development. They don't have it uh, when they're first born. Right, so it's really funny. Um, 
when I went up to my daughter for the first time, um, you know, I held her, it was all real nice, but then I, you know, put her down and she went to sleep and I picked her up and she must, was no doubt was thinking, he looks a lot like that other guy I saw. Because, again, there's no idea of object permanence. It's just another whole bunch of pieces of people that all look the same. Right? It'll be a while before, oh, you see, that guy continues to exist when I'm not looking at him. Right? But that's not immediately obvious. All right? That's a structure that the human mind goes through. Object permanence is part of it. That develops at a particular phase in the development of human infants. And Piaget did tests to find out when it happens. And he was able to find what things happened in what order. For example, I'll give you a second. You take an odd-shaped cup, pour the liquid into something that was like a cube, and then you know, give them the choice between, I guess it had something they wanted, like milk or something. But then he would go the other way. And he would look to see if they had some preference because they thought they were getting more milk in the weird-shaped cup or more milk in the... Or, or, they, or you do it not just with milk, you do it with candy, too, but it's, the idea is the same. You take the same volume, you pour it into something else, and then you ask the child, which gives you more? Up to a certain point, they're actually going to pick something else. That's more. And then there's a certain point, bang, where the structure changes, and they say, what do you mean more? You just pour the same thing into it, nothing changes. That doesn't happen initially. That's a, in other words, the process of bringing these assumptions about the world online in your psyche, that happens in a, in a patterned, predictable way. She so says there are underlying structures to the development of the human mind. Wow. That's pretty interesting. I mean, it's kind of a cool idea. You know, it's not a far-fetched idea. I mean, it might be right, might be wrong, but, you know, it's worth considering, yeah. What is gestalt psychology? It's related to, but not the same as gestalt psychology. Gestalt psychology is, a looking at, is looking for patterns, but these patterns are not structures like these. Gestalts are subjective rather than objective. We can, we can make them intersubjective. I can talk about patterns that I see. But the patterns are always assumed to be up here, not out there. The structuralists think the patterns are out there. Gestalt psychology says the human mind aggregates things in certain ways. The structuralists think they're doing that because the structures are real. They're really there. They're responding to something that's external to them. Yeah. Is Young before or part of this? No, he's not part of it. Young goes in the opposite, the opposite direction. Okay. Young is actually kind of an interesting He gets a worse rap than he deserves, but he gets a fairly bad rap. Okay. Um, Jung believes in something called the collective unconscious. Okay. Now that sounds like an improbable idea. But remember that the Germans come up with, first of all, the idea of a collective consciousness. Goes back to Hegel and Kant. Okay. As soon as Freud introduces the idea of the unconscious to the individual, what he's doing there is something important. All right, think about this. What he's doing is breaking up the atom of the psyche. In other words, what Freud is doing is fractioning the psyche, which is almost perfectly analogous to fractioning the atom. And in both cases, it generates unexpected epistemological problems. Because back in the Enlightenment, their theory of, of philosophical psychology 
was Cartesianism. There's me, I'm the Cartesian monad. I gaze at my navel, I go spelunking about inside myself, and I come back to report what I found. <laughs> and I have special access to this. You can't tell me what's in there. I can tell you, but you can't tell me. Freud says, no. In fact, you don't know what's in there. I know what's in there, because you don't know about your unconscious. So what I've done is now broken up that monad of consciousness that Descartes gave us into its subatomic particles. Generates a whole new set of problems because you had previously been hoping to know yourself. And Freud says, well, that's possible, provided you undergo psychoanalysis. But if you don't, then the chance of knowing yourself is zero. Because what's really driving you is passions connected to sex and aggression that you don't even know about, that you won't even tell yourself about. So what we're going to do around the turn of the century is break up the atom, and it's going to generate a new physics. Of course, corresponding to that, because that's going to be science 4.0, we're going to have to have a new set of soft sciences, and Freud is right on schedule. You see how that works. All right, just going to try to tell you about science. It's happening again around 1900. And so everything's going to get re get revamped onto that basis, yeah. The, um, it seems that, wait, sorry, was Freud aware of the Adam being split? Oh, yeah. I mean, he knew that it was in trouble, but, I mean, it had been, I mean, he lived until the 1920s, so yeah, he saw, I mean, the confirmation of relativity and all that stuff. And so it seems that his, his social science revolution preceded, to some extent, the hard science. You're right, you're right. Um, they're happening at the same time, because, or they overlap, um, for a number of reasons. One, because of Nietzschean philosophy, the breaking of, of religion, but also because it's very clear at the end of the 19th century, once you get, uh, um, what I think of, who's, who wrote uh, electromagnetism? Uh, Maxwell's equations. Once you get those, it's very clear that we're having problems locating electrons. That means that Newtonian mechanics is in trouble now. Okay, so now we're starting to accumulate epicycles. Right. All right. By 1880, the epicycles are there. Everybody knows there's a problem, just nobody knows what you what you solve it. Gotcha. Okay. So we know that science is in transition here. And just then, Freud shows up. There we go. And then we get a whole new a collection of new things. Uh, the novel gets superseded in the same way that it superseded the epic. Gets superseded by the movie. Get the new technology that comes from being able to control electrons. It's all keyed in the way I said. Structuralism is an attempt to revive idealism, which is what you would expect from an idealist tradition founded by Descartes. Hunger, you know, uh, going all the way back to Plato. You know, this in some ways is Plato's revenge. Ah, <laughs> there are special, invisible things hidden in all the stuff you experience. <laughs> Eventually somebody will find them and show you that linguistics is really a kind of crystallography. <laughs> well, no, if you stop and think about it, um, crystals are built upon a very rigid and very determinate geometry, right? You can see those as grammatical rules for building crystals. You can see the rules for chemical connection as a grammar for connecting material things. As long as they're rules, it's going to, you can make a structuralism out of it. 
so the, the physics and biology are all part of the big super science. Exactly right. <laughs> what else would you expect? You think that these guys are going to leave anything out? No, the point is we want to figure out how knowledge is unified. I mean, many of us long for the idea of a unified science or unified knowledge. You know? Yeah, I don't blame you. But on the other hand, it's one thing to long for it and another thing to actually achieve it. Yeah. What transformations occur in crystallography? Oh, um, when, we turn, when we turn carbon into diamonds. We put the right pressure onto them, we transform them into that. If I throw in different trace elements, I give you different colors. It's another set of rules governing color. <laughs> yeah, in other words, it's a surprisingly clever set of ideas. In other words, once they begin to see patterns about patterns, which is what this is, um, you know, the sky's the limit. The problem is, eventually, they all pile up into the giant structure of structures. And this sounds like God without a personality. Again, it sounds a little bit like Spinoza. Right? Yeah. This sort of makes sense to me now why linguistics is considered a science, because I thought mostly it was because of the way that it's studied, but it's also because of the way that it is. My daughter's in graduate school for linguistics, and uh, she's really interested in computational linguistics. And in fact, you can turn um, not just linguistic structures within a language, but structures that talk about things like the declarative sentence or the interrogative sentence. It's possible to mathematize those so that they have their own mathematical lingo, and it's possible then to actually do computation on it, which is connected to the idea of natural language processing by computers. Right. So, yeah. Uh, now, as far as I know, lingu in linguistics, uh, structuralism is dead. There's nobody that's serious about it. It was, take, it was just taken out by the Chomsky revolution. But uh, you still see bits and pieces of it, like my argument about political science or political party systems, right? On the other hand, um, this has been roundly criticized within its own tradition by, by people that were called post-structuralists, people like Michel Foucault, mm. all right, uh, and any of the postmodern types. What they wanted to do was saying, look, structuralism is artificial and it's pareidolia. You know, it's, that's the uh, psyche, it's a psychological tendency to find patterns where none exist. <laughs> right. You know, it's like looking at, the, at the, the trees in winter when they've lost their leaves, not here but up north, and then saying, hmm, what do those spell out? They don't spell out anything. <laughs> right. right. Well, if you look hard enough, eventually you'll find something, but the post doctors say, look, this is something you made up. It's not out there. It's up here. Get rid of it. Yeah. I'm confused a little bit on the, the linguistics structuralism part that you just mentioned. Okay. So what, what exactly would they be trying to find, like underlying words that... No. Underlying ways of describing relationship between words. So, for example, you might have the relationship between nouns and verbs, mm -hmm. or you might have relationship between you might have a language that doesn't distinguish between nouns and verbs. So they have something called noun verbs, mm. right? So there'd be a term for horse walking, a term for horse eating, a term for horse sleeping. There are languages like that. They don't all parse the world up the way we do. 
Okay, what you're looking for then is mathematical ways of describing, either keep either splitting them or clumping them. And then the rules that govern the connection between them. I don't understand it either. But I'm, I'm told that it's really hard and I believe it. So why was post-structuralism so successful? Um, be, well, first of all, because uh, the grandiosity of the structures. Well, again, they've been doing this for a long time in the, on the continent. You don't know Comte, C-O-M-T-E, but he was a real nut bar. And he was creating a giant super science that covered everything. Um, this, in some ways, is a kind of inverted Hegelianism. This talks about everything too, but in a completely atemporal, ahistorical way. Here stuff doesn't develop, it just has the structure. And the structure is outside of space and time, sitting there waiting for you to think about it. It's up in the realm of the forms, right? <laughs> Where else would it be? But again, that's a hard sell nowadays because the realm of the forms is hard to distinguish from heaven. <laughs> yeah. How, how close is this to like when you when we talk, when you talk about the forms in in context of the structures, I think of like so like is is the Platonic cave in this sense the shadows we see on the yeah. wall are made by in structures. Other words, if you don't see the structures, you're living in the cave. Yeah, but he can raise they can raise you up by bringing your mind to these infinite, perfect, changeless things. But they're but structures are defined by changes. Right, you see, here we've made our peace with transformation. Why? Because the transformation is structural. So we can predict how it's going to transform. It doesn't transform into In other words, look, when you plant the acorn, it doesn't turn into a baby carriage. Right? <laughs> it turns into an oak tree. So we made our peace with the world that wiggles, and we said, Plato, lighten up. All right, we got a way of allowing for this. So we have these predictable transformations. Yeah, it's a surprisingly powerful set of ideas, actually. There's a lot you could do with this. I mean, literary criticism, strangely enough. You can do, in other words, you can apply this to pretty much anything you would want to. Right. Some, and I judge them, things like this on the basis of whether they're actually useful or not. In other words, do they give us some understanding we didn't have before? That's why I still hold on to the structuralist argument that I make about political parties. It seems to be informative. All right? And looking for underlying structures can sometimes be illuminating. I mean, sometimes you can find connections you might have not have thought of otherwise. Right? I mean, who would have thought to think of cuisine as a kind of language? But it operates according to its own grammar. Think about sitting down to a fancy dinner and having dessert come first. All of you would say, look, that's not the grammar of our cuisine. You don't do that. Every one of you say, that's, that's wrong. And, what, and one way of the is say, that's ungrammatical within our regime of cookery. <laughs> yeah. Is morality a structure? That's exactly what they would say. Of course it is, yes. Everything's a structure. Why not morality? But, but then don't you have in morality? Well, I might say that it actually is relative. I might say, for example, that circumstances inform our understanding of morality. As when Aristotle says, virtue is a mean between two vices, but what counts as a mean depends upon the circumstances you're in. Okay, but then we've just gotten 
meta across circumstances because we saw the superstructure. Okay. Um, I think he leaves it open-ended because of the idea of phrenesis. In other words, when do we invoke? What standard? Well, you have to you fudge it a little bit because that's what Aristotelians do. And I don't blame them because look, nobody knows how to solve the problem perfectly. But uh, it seems to me that it's going to be hard to perfectly reconcile the idea of phrenesis with these perfectly objective structures that exist to the sufficiently penetrating mind. This sounds to me like Kant. <laughs> I'm going to figure it all out. I, I said the magic word. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it sounds to me like Kant, like, no, don't give me any fuzzy stuff. I don't want to hear about phrenesis. I want the algorithm. What these guys are looking for is the algorithm for a particular question. They want to turn it into something more than math, which is a really weird idea. So when post-structuralism comes, I assume that it uh, undermines all of the... Uh, the structuralist regimes, yeah. All, and all the, all the structuralist accounts of anthropology, psychology, etc. Well, it, it undermines them, calls them into question. It has different degrees of uh, traction in different disciplines, right? So uh, you'll still occasionally see somebody working in a structuralist tradition in anthropology. You don't see it in linguistics anymore. I don't know enough about mathematics to know if they're still doing that. But the idea is that it came under heavy attack and they pushed it as far as it could go and it wouldn't take the place of something like theology. The structure of structures. I mean, nobody knew what to do with that. So all of this, this kind of building of super disciplines all moves towards some peak. And the problem is that we live in an age that uh, is suspicious of peaks, right? So in what's called the 20th century, uh, uh, an age in which we found a hermeneutic of suspicion, everyone was suspicious of grand claims, well, this met the same fate, right? As the grand claims made by the logical positivists that science would rule everything, no. Yeah. You said a minute ago that they wanted to almost move beyond math. But could yes. you would you be able to apply the whole like if you try to move beyond reason you become unreasonable? So if you try to move beyond math, would you become then less than math? Well, if math and reason are the same thing, maybe they're not. Maybe logic is what's un what underlies and makes possible mathematics. That's mm -hmm. been the claim since about eighteen eighty or so. Um now, that turned out not to work once they got about 1930, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. But uh, the idea was that we were looking for the ultimate logical structure that explained it. Now, it turns out that mathematics can't do that. And it also turns out that uh, any mathematics sufficiently powerful to create arithmetic, all right, is going to have unprovable statements in it, which is the way it works, which is horrible. Right. It means we kiss mathematics goodbye as our platonic touchstone that's been saving us from all kinds of skeptical empirical stuff. All right. um, a very interesting thing is going to turn out to be when again connected to this is the uh, the kind of counterintuitive qualities of mathematics. You're going to like this. Okay. Um, in 
the mid-19th century, it's been about 1860, 1870, there's a guy, Pole named Lobachevsky. And the Poles do some very powerful mathematics and logic. They were the first people to break the Enigma code, code of the Nazis, not the English. And there's some very good code breakers there. Well, okay. Um, in Poland, all right, uh, we had some very powerful mathematics being done. They have a long tradition of that. And uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my, my train. Give me, give, give it to me. Where was it? Lobachevsky. Yeah, here we go. Okay, this is great because it shows something about mathematics which will blow your mind. All right. It turns out that you can't prove the fifth axiom of uh, Euclidean geometry. And the fifth axiom is that the parallel lines never meet. You can prove the other four. You can't prove this one. Okay. So they go 2,000 years, and no one is able to solve the problem of parallels. All right. And yet it seems somehow intuitive, doesn't it, that parallel lines never meet? It's not like you can go a little bit further and they cross. Okay. That's what we all thought about geometry. We all thought that Euclidean geometry was natural geometry because that's the way the world was. And that's what we observed. We looked at two parallel lines, they didn't meet. Okay. 1919. Sir Arthur Eddington is now trying to test Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, what Einstein gives up in his theory of relativity is the idea of absolute space and time. Okay. What that means is, is that not only can time become dilated, stretch in other words, it also means that space is no longer absolute. So space can actually stretch. So the way they tested the theory of relativity was Arthur Eddington went to some place in Asia and watched a total eclipse of the sun. Now he knew the location of certain stars way out there, right? And he knew exactly where they were compared to the edge of the sun and the edge of the moon that was occluding it, okay? Einstein's theory predicted that Newtonian absolute space would break down, and in fact, space itself would curve. And so the shortest distance between two points, which is what a photon always takes, would actually curve around the... Uh, gravitational field of the sun. In other words, you need something really, really massive in order to actually curve space to a point where you can observe it. Okay. He goes there, and he's looking, and he says, I know exactly when, I'm, when I ought to see, if it's a straight line, when I ought to see that star and its light. If I see it before that, that proves that the star's light is actually bending around the sun, and that means that space actually is curved. Okay, said so this is the, we finally found a way to test Einstein's wild ideas. They look at it, and indeed it turns out that he sees the star before, while it's still on the black side of the occlusion, it goes right around. What that means is that the space around the sun is actually curved, and that's the shortest distance between a straight line. Now you may wonder why I'm telling you this, because I'm about to mess with your brain. Here's a fact about parallel lines. 
If two parallel lines, say the lines created by two photons that are set parallel to one another, if they go through absolute space, um, I can see why you would think that they don't meet. But if they go through curved space, okay, of necessity, those parallel lines are going to meet. There's one side that goes away infinitely, and there's another side that, that converges infinitely, which means that in this case, parallel lines do in fact meet in the empirical observable world. Now we find out that geometry is not, is not true or false, but rather useful and useless. It turns out that when you're dealing with these really big relativistic spaces, um, the geometry that says that parallel lines meet uh, is correct. Now what Lobachevsky did in the 19th century, he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to solve this problem for Euclid. I'm going to assume that parallel lines don't meet. And I'm going to do everything that Euclid did. And when I generate a contradiction, then I will have pr proven by a reduction to absurdity that parallel lines can't meet. Now the problem that Lobachevsky had is that he went on and on and on and it never generated a contradiction. <laughs> All right, so now we have two alternative accounts of geometry which are inconsistent with one another. And it turns out that both of them are empirically observable in the world. Can you see how the fact that, that space is curved at all means that they move ever so slightly, and it doesn't matter how slightly it is, because you've got an awful lot of space out there. And what that means is that they, that they diverge completely, and they converge completely, which means the parallel lines meet in the real world. Can we, so, that example, you're saying that the sun is here, and yeah. then the the star is in a fixed point right here. Right. And you're saying, what is making it curve exactly? What is The space itself is curved. The space... That's the, that's the shortest distance between, between straight lines, yeah. The space is not, is not absolute Newtonian space. What space? The, the space that it's traveling through, the outer space. Is curved. The space between us and that star, yeah. How is it curved? Uh, by, by doing this. <laughs> that's how it's curved. Have you ever seen one of those drawings of a black hole where all of a sudden it goes Right, like right. That's, that's what, what they're saying. That's the what space, curve. that's what happens to space itself. It curves. Yeah. What would be the explanation for that? Correct. That's how nature works. Hmm. What do you want me to say? It's like asking, <laughs> why does water boil at 100 degrees centigrade? That's how it is. Okay, now what that means is this. We who had kind of laughed off the idea of non-Euclidean geometry because at least it doesn't apply to the world. It turns out that it does. <laughs> and that geometry is not true or false or Euclidean or non-Euclidean. It's just some is more useful than others under different circumstances. <laughs> Poor Plato. Who's taking a fierce beating here? Right, right. I mean, you want to turn everything into into geometry? Nay, that's not going to help us. Can you see how messed up that idea is? All rationalism had been dying to turn the world into math. Alas, the mathematicians have already ruined that for us by showing us that mathematics has its own intrinsic limitations, and also that. Uh, Mathematics 
um, can be contradictory and still useful, which I I just don't do that. That's I mean, look, that's a real kick to the platonic head. All right. So now you see why we're here. <laughs> this is percolating all through you. That's messed up, isn't it? See, no, I can, it's very good to see how his mind is being blown. <laughs> In different ways. It was like, oh, that's messed up. There's nothing better than the fact we sit on opposite. Right, yeah. <laughs> but that is messed up. I mean, what it means is that parallel lines meet in the real world. <laughs> yeah, um, and God knows what we're going to what we're going to observe in the future. I mean, if it's possible to invert to observe things like, well, we were wrong about parallels; they do actually meet. Good God, what else might we find? What was the name of the guy that did? Lobachevsky. Lobachevsky, 19th century Polish mathematician, smart guy. Is saying that parallel lines do in fact meet the same as saying there's no such thing as parallel lines? No. Um, I, can defi- I can create parallel lines. I mean, every 10th grader does when they learn Euclidean geometry. Right. Um, Imagine being a 5th grader, like, no, actually, Wait, no. But, <laughs> if, the def- if the definition of parallel lines... <laughs> if the definition of parallel lines has been changed, that they can intersect... No, the point is, you can't prove that they do or don't intersect. You could have have to go either way. There's no proof. No proof is possible. And it turns out that both are applicable under different circumstances. I mean, don't worry. For practical purposes, you're not going to be moving things around to the size of the sun, so it really isn't going to make much difference to you. So driving down the highway, stay in your lane. It's all good that way. Um, If you converge, it's your fault. (laughs) <laughs> it's not relativity. On the other, oh, right. but, that also, but that that does depend on infinite space, right? So, yeah. Uh, it, by what means would uh, a postulate of infinite space be provable? Um, it has to do with the nature of space itself. We're talking about three-dimensional containers of space. Well, it can't, for example, cubes or tetrahedrons, yeah. but there has to be an outside of them. Uh, what bounds that? And whatever it is that bounds it, we're going to have well, what bounds that. There we go. I hate it when that happens. We thought we were good with, with geometry, right? And math was going to give us, you know, no. No, it turns out that uh, uh, a new super discipline may emerge, but it hasn't emerged yet. <laughs> and what do we have now are some really interesting uh, epistemological Notice the similarity between breaking up the self and breaking up the, the uh, atom, the, the minimal unit of psychology and physics. They generate new weird problems. I don't think that, the, that it's an accident that they will happen at the same time. You see how this connects back to what I was telling you about pre-Socratic physics and those all works the same way. You know why? Because of the underlying structure. This is like the conversation last semester about quantum mechanics right. and like how it breaks down between quantum and classical mechanics. This was uh, also actually a structural discussion. <laughs> I just didn't tell you. But <laughs> <laughs> what we've been doing. Oh, your yeah. theory of the history is a structural Lovely. I think, <laughs> right? I just can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand. Structure of science and humanity. Okay. <laughs> there we go. 
There's a dialectical relationship. Can we, can we go over the anthropology one more yeah, time sure. of the structuralism that yeah. part also is? Every society has kinship. Mm-hmm. You distinguish between people you're related to and people you're not. That carries with it a whole bunch of other distinctions. For example, there are people with whom you can have sex and people with whom you can't. That's the incest taboo. Mm-hmm. You find it everywhere. There are people you're allowed to have sex with and people you're not. Right? Which is connected to the people you're related to and the people you're not. These underlying structures seem to be found in all minds, which is why primitives have kinship and so do we. And why primitives have sexual taboos and so do we. And why uh, primitives have taboos about eating and so do we. <clears throat> How is it that we all, I mean, that all societies seem to be generating these same or analogous distinctions? Now, the problem is when Levi Strauss wants to take the anthropology and extend it further, then it gets a little dicey and uncertain. Right? So, for example, uh, the opposite of the raw is the cooked. Okay. And there are some things that you don't eat raw, right? I mean, people, for example, think about it this way. There are lots of people that like rare steak, like a good rare steak. There's nobody that likes rare chicken. That's real. Well, of course, that's disgusting. (laughs) Of course, yeah. Right. As if there's there's no significant difference. I mean, what you're eating is flesh that's not been properly cooked. We like it in one case and don't like it in the other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. It's not only a taste thing, but it's because of of salmonella and. You can get that. You can get all kinds of diseases from rare steak, too. So, could you say that the structures are related to pleasure, then? What? In this, because we're talking about diseases, and you don't like getting diseases, and one may taste better than the other. So, is that structure related to pleasure versus unpleasurable? Mm, To some extent, but I'm not sure, for example, that uh, sectioning off a portion of humanity with whom you can't have sex, it's hard for me to see how that serves the pleasure principle. Right? You wouldn't have an incest taboo if this was about pleasure. All right. But here's where Levi Strauss gets a little strange. He then begins to break it down. He says, what's the big difference in, within cooker? Between, we have the difference between the raw and the cooked. Within the cooked, the big difference is between the roasted mm-hmm. and the liquefied soup. Now, this is kind of, remember, these guys are Frenchmen, so... Cuisine is a big deal in a way that Americans look at that and said, no, it is not at all obvious to me that the inverse of soup is roasted meat. But he goes further. Later on, we'll find out that the inverse of tobacco is honey. Interesting. Well, I mean, i got to admit, tobacco is not very much like honey. If I think about tobacco, about the last thing I think of is honey. But I still don't see how they're a binary alternative. I mean, why can't, you know, I mean, Dr. Pepper be the opposite of tobacco? I mean, I don't know why. What's his reasoning? Well, you see, he doesn't, sometimes they, they don't always give you reasons. You see, look, this is the opposite of that. I don't exactly know why. All right? So uh, I think it's because it'll have something to do with the fact that tobacco is smoked, so it gets turned into something ethereal, whereas honey's really dense and eaten. 
right? So it's the rarefied and the thick, something like that. But again, I don't know why. All right? So there's an element of the arbitrary that we get here. Can we go back for a bit to the structure of morality? Because yeah. I'm, I think mean, I may just be missing something in the argument, but I'm confused about how, like, if, if the structure is based on your society and your society has a different structure right. of morality than somebody else's, what's his explanation for things like the taboo against incest or cannibalism? Mm. He says that there are common structures that all human minds shape, so, uh, share. Does so that, that mean that there is an external structure that is universal? And well, no, the fact that they have this does not give us the human justification for, des for deciding that because we all share these structures that we ought to share these structures. But the fact You're that trying to derive an ought from an is. It's not going to work. It's just a coincidence. Not, not even deriving an ought from the is, but deriving that like this is, that we all share these um, these same taboos and apparently share the same structure. So therefore, there is an external good and an external truth. We see that what they would probably, what he would probably say is that um, this, if what you mean by external good and truth is the fact that we all have this structure, well, in a tautological circular way, that's true. But the fact that we happen to all have an incest taboo doesn't tell us that incest is bad. It just tells us that we happen to have it. But it also says that there is an external reality, that we all are agreeing. There's an external reality. I don't think that was ever in doubt. An external, well, I mean Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the external existence of something that guides our actions, that we see as a reason to guide our actions. Right. In other which words, is essentially just morality. about every human being uh, acknowledges an incest taboo, that people right. can't have sex um, the fact that we do, all right, is a fact about the human individual um, analogous to the fact that we all breathe. The fact that we all breathe does not prove that we should all breathe or that we all ought to be breathing, we just do. But it proves that we all have, that the human body has lungs and lungs breathe. Yes, they do. That's, our, that's right. They do have lungs. That's right. And On the other hand, you know, we are not free to decide to stop having lungs we are free to violate the incest taboo. We're also free to stop breathing. Well, that's a pretty hard thing to do. I mean, I know, you know that song by R.E.M., Try Not to Breathe? <laughs> right? It doesn't work all that well. It's one of those Hobbesian things where even if the sovereign tells you, stop breathing, you don't have to, yeah. you can't. <laughs> but, like, you are, you are physically capable of stopping yourself from breathing in the same way that you're capable of choosing to violate the taboo. Well, um, I'm not entirely convinced of that. In other words, um, I can choose to violate the incest taboo and have sex with a relative that I'm not supposed to have sex with. Um, and that can be actually accomplished. Whereas if I decide to hold my breath, I get about 30 to 60 seconds. And no, it turns out I'm not going to be able to do that. I've known kids who when they got mad would hold their breath till they passed out. God so, I mean, <laughs> no, yes. anyone who wants to do that absolutely should. <laughs> That's my, my best understanding. <laughs> but I, my, my point being that bec just because we can violate the structure doesn't mean that there isn't an external guiding principle, whether you want to call it. We have a tendency. It's a tendency. We see this tendency expressed in virtually every society. Mm -hmm. There are people you can't have sex with. Um, the fact that, that we have this tendency 
I don't know if it proves anything about whether the tendency is intrinsically good or not, rather that it simply exists. I'm not even saying that it's intrinsically good, but that it is something universal to humanity. It is something It certainly that appears we, to be, yeah. Right. right. And and if you can look at this is something common to humanity that we guide our actions according to, then I mean that, that seems like a problem for a theory that says these structures are subjective and based on They're not subjective. These subject these structures are objective. Structuralism holds that those, that those structures are out there, mm -hmm. independent of our mind, in the same way that mathematics is. But they're not necessary. How do you mean necessary? They don't have to exist the way that they do. Well, I mean, how does mathematics have to exist? It, it doesn't have to, it just does. It does exist. But okay, the structures, but structures, the structures like, could exist differently. And they do. No, I don't think that. How do you mean that? Because like, we, we have a structure of the way that we Eat, mm -hmm. we, you know, have like you're saying this grammar. And if you go to France, they have a different structure of the way that they eat. Those are different structures. They're not okay. required to, like, it's not necessary that they exist the way they do in order to exist. Okay, I see what you're driving at. Um, mathematics doesn't change from culture to culture, whereas uh, other uh, cultural structures like cuisine do. That's the point. Okay, I think that's right. But on the other hand, the fact that every culture has a structure covering cuisine or language, um, that I think is more like mathematics. I think mean, that's genuinely universal. What the details of it all, the specifics of it all may vary, but the fact that there is a governing structure for all those things, yeah, I think there is. Um, so he talks about groups within structures. Mm -hmm. And uh, he starts talking about um, the structure of mathematics. but. Um, what is the self-regulating okay. aspect of math? Self-regulating. Um, it finds its own limits and pushes itself to its limits. Remember that he's writing in the wake of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. All this grandiose stuff about math solving all our intellectual problems and founding you know, true knowledge and all that platonic jazz. Um, Gödel just says, look, um, mathematics is intrinsically limited. It's imperfect and it's flawed. All right. It will not ultimately create the foundation for knowledge that Plato, that everybody since Plato has wanted. All right. And it's demonstrable in a mathematical way using mathematical tools, which means it's that level of certain. Okay, if, that, if, if it's that level of certain, then we're going to have to look around for something else to organize knowledge around. And what they come up with is these structures. Does that make sense? What are those structures yeah. that he... These structures, in other words, these structures are ideal things that exist in the world. We don't invent them, we discover them. Right. In the same way that it's an amazing thing 3,000 years ago to find out that twins and a brace of pheasants have some important thing in common, um, what they're trying to do in the middle of the 20th century is show that um, the rules governing cuisine and the rules governing mathematics and the rules governing kinship are all participating in the same structures. And these are conceptual entities that exist independent of the mind. You find out about them, you don't create them. So in other words, what they're trying to do is have this take the place that was previously held by mathematics in holding together a rationalistic worldview. 
What was his name again that refuted that thing? Saussure, that's the, uh, that's the uh, linguist. And the guy who uh, criticized it were people like Foucault. In the maths, in the math. Uh, in math? Yeah. Uh, Bour the Bourbaki are the ones who are the structuralists. Okay. But they got to the limit of what you can do with structuralists. They had to take new roots. But you got to ask yourself, what kind of strange super discipline is it that can connect these very disparate domains of knowledge? It's an interesting kind of gambit. I think that it, it's, it doesn't last, it doesn't sustain itself. But it suggests the possibility of renewing right, the, the idea of conceptual connections between very dis different phenomena. Yeah? So did, did Plato see the forms, all the different forms, as connected in the same way that structures are? We have the form of forms is the good. Is the good? Okay. We go. So structure, structure should be the good, but it's the twentieth century. So structuralism then is just a. Could you say that it's a way to justify change within a Platonic idea of the forms? It's a way of thinking about organized change. And so the other thing is that it's. So they like relations. Plato likes forms. Form is what one thing is. A relation is the way that many different things interact with each other. It's different. So. Um, structures or structural structures are only found in whole things right? so uh, a pile of sand is not a structure a human body is a structure or a, a car is a structure all right so a structure is, is a, a unified entity not an aggregate right? so there's no need to find the structure of mud because there isn't any all right but there might well be something like, say, uh, a structure of geometry, right? or a structure of family relations. Because look, there are I mean, a number of ways in which you can organize kinship. It could be patrilineal, or it could be matrilineal. And those clearly are binary oppositions. And then you can have uh, you know, families be extended or nuclear. And again, those are a different set of oppositions. But you could describe such kinship networks in these structures. Uh, Levi-Strauss also has something called the totemic operator. He has this giant thing that looks like that uh, uh, example they gave you of the crystal at the beginning of the book, except that here he has, the, he has a, a tribe of Indians in the Pacific Northwest, and within them there is the, the deer clan and the bear clan and the beaver clan. Well, it turns out that they have structural relations like that. Sorry, I have one more question about that point. That like, so if if structures can vary between cultures, mm -hmm. but every culture must have a structure for certain things like how you eat and morality, then is the structure of structures just that there must be structures? Yeah. In other words, it's the assumption that holes make up structures, and that groups of holes also make up structures, and yeah, it leads you ultimately towards. I don't know, towards some convergence that I, do I know not what? The structure of structures, whatever that might be. It seems like God without a personality. It seems like a kind of Spinozistic. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just have a question. Um, how much of this, I know he mentions Husserl uh, quite a bit, but um, what are the existentialist and phenomenologists? Um, structuralism was thought of as being the uh, intellectual uh, heir to existentialism, 
And of course, existentialism grew largely out of phenomenology. So uh, Heidegger was a student of Husserl and uh, ratted them out to the Nazis and got them bounced. But uh, uh, as existentialism began to erupt, Heidegger ratted Husserl out to the Nazis. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, he was a Nazi. Yeah, I know Heidegger was a Nazi. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that he betrayed his teacher. Well, yeah. you know. It happens, I suppose. <laughs> Indeed it does. Um, yeah, he was a nasty piece of work, uh, Heidegger. But uh, coming back to this, uh, structuralism was thought to be the new um, alternative to the fuzziness and nebulous qualities of something like existentialism. Because, look, existentialism just says, look, oh, life is so scary. I feel so lonesome. Oh, please stop it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's actually rancid romanticism, which has gone bad, and it really is trying it. When I was here, I used to find uh, existentialist novels interesting. I, I can't st stay in the same room with them now, because they're really kind of dull. I mean, you feel sorry for yourself, and life is hard. Please stop. I mean, I don't need a novel. <laughs> and they all tell you essentially the same thing. Uh, you know, that life is hard and you have to make a decision. Okay. Uh, what that is, is a kind of weak, you know, renewed romanticism. Yeah. What, is, what does Piaget have to do, since he's coming after all of Schellefeld, is he structuralism, is he trying to tie it all in together? Yeah. Or is he he says, look, this is how I use it in psychology. I found that there are structures in the human mind and that these structures come online and become effective in a particular order, in particular ways. So what he's looking for in his psychology, in doing experiments with children, is to find out how the structures inherent in the mind develop according to what pattern or according to what structural rules of transformation. In the same way, there are rules of transformation governing the change of the body from an infant to an adult there are also a series of structural transformative rules that govern the change in your thinking and your consciousness. There's a time when you don't have object permanence. Right? There's a time when you don't know that the same volume in different shapes is the same amount. Uh, yeah. How do we know that various structures are connected to each other? So what does... I mean, I guess this has been said a bunch, but I, I still don't get it. Like, how how does how is psychology how is that structure related to crystallography or related okay. to? Um, it turns out that the structure that we may find useful for talking about kinship may also be exactly the same structure that we find useful for talking about the different kinds of crystals that we have. We have the cubic crystals, we have the tetrahedron crystals, we have, well, okay, suppose we put up a structure that has all those points, like you see in the beginning of Piaget. Well, we can, might use that, we might deploy that for anthropology and talking about kinship, but the same structure may well be useful for talking about gems. <laughs> it's like asking, how can we have the same mathematics apply to both rocks and people? Well, it turns out that's the way math is. This is trying to be something like math. This is the underlying substructure that connects all of those phenomena on the surface. See, you won't really understand postmodernism and post-structuralism until you understand structuralism. 
you got to pay your dues, and this is one of the easier ways of getting into it. Most structuralist books are actually much more demanding. Piaget is actually a pretty good access. Well, what's the time period of this the whole structuralism being popular? Uh, it's, it's, it's reaching its peak in the 70s when I'm in college, and it's starting to die out in the 80s when it's getting hit by Foucault and the other post-structuralists like Barr. And it began in the... It began, or, well, say with... Uh, with Saussure's Structuralist Linguistics about 1910. All right. Yeah, or of growth. So this is kind of an interesting set of ideas. It's granted foreign to most of us, but it's not, on the face of it, preposterous. All right. I mean, if you see the way math works and how math would have been treated by people that did not realize that you could mathematize the physical world. You go, well, hmm, what do twins have to do with a pair of pheasants? Well, it's not until you work out a while until you get used to dealing with numbers. You say, ah, the number, the quantity is the same. Well, suppose I were to tell you that they have the same structure. Well, you might look at that initial table. I don't see any structure. I just see some birds and some people. You see my point. The structure is not something you observe. It's a conceptual connection, like the, like the connection we're talking about with quantity. Okay. So what they're doing is looking for universals in the world and in the human mind. And uh, as with most intellectual approaches or methods, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I mean, what does it get you? What does it accomplish for you? I was able to use these ideas and get some results that were worthwhile. That's what justifies it. Right? Um, a system of thought is worthwhile if you can do stuff with it. And you can do some things with this. All right? I think that it's been oversold. It's not the universal solution to all problems. It doesn't cut the Gordian knot for all possible thought, which is what, look, everybody in the Western tradition is trying to do. Right? Give us that one silver bullet. But it does help us solve some sorts of problems. And if you make the more modest, what I would call the weak claims for it, I think it's still a pretty, I mean, I still think it's a living tradition. It seems that the post-structuralists want to say that there was absolutely nothing of value. Of course. But what do they? Do they? Are they just skeptics, or do they have something positive to say in this box? No, they're, they're skeptics. Okay. I mean, what they're saying is, is that uh, they doubt that there's anything holding these phenomena together. They're saying you invented that. That's imaginary rather than real. What we're trying to say is, no, these structures are even more real than the phenomena they represent. And they're saying, no, 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 no. These are less real. You invented them. They're, not, they're shivers. So Diogenes bringing in Plato's... There we go. There we go. Right? Uh, that's the problem with postmodernism. They only accept the negative in the sense that it's always been a kind of intellectual vandalism. They know what they're opposed to, but there's no affirmative doctrine except breaking down inherited tradition. It's a kind of nihilism. They're the children of Nietzsche, too.
Now, what are we doing next week and the week after that, if I'm correct, is, these, is spring break, is that the case? So, we're, oh, okay. Um, this should tune you up pretty good, all right? I want you to think about Hume's fork. And I want you to realize what a jolly fellow Hume is, who can write us a fun book, rather than this brittle little individual <laughs> who's rather nasty. But I mean, look, look, it's a destructive little book. It's a young man's book because he's just no sense of proportion. All right? Imagine an Englishman going to Vienna to find out about Humean skepticism. The hell's going on there? How did you get to Vienna of all places? <laughs> and you got to remember that it gets there in the 1920s when Freud is still a big uh, intellectual uh, luminary in Vienna, and how they get how to connect those two is very hard to say. All right. Now, Language, Truth, and Logic is a pretty easy, straightforward book. All right. It is almost completely destructive, and it's kind of entertaining. All right. This is what happens to the Anglo-American tradition in the 20th century. We'll see it again. And because you've paid your dues and you've read a couple of centuries earlier, you'll see that, wow, this really isn't new. In fact, it's something really old. And that is a sign that you are close to cultural competence, which is a great thing to see. All right, questions about this? In that case, then, I will see you all next week. You're going to be in your... Oh, shit. Oh, that's awful. Awful.